I don't know that we could have uh, that you could have picked better songs. I I hope you guys were listening and thinking about the words. Um, I'm desperate for you, and I'm lost without you. Is is the appropriate state of a soul that's right with God. So I I, I am grateful. There was some the realization of where we are without God is is so important. I hope that's what God shows us today. So we trust you, God, to teach us. I know that you want to teach your children. I know that you want to teach us in all wisdom. I know that you want to make us complete, mature, perfect is the word that you use. I know that the work that Jesus did, the substitutionary death, makes it all, makes all the difference. Make, make, allows us to have a relationship with you. And I thank you for that. I ask that you would open our eyes. Sometimes we're, we move so far beyond the simple truths that we get lost in our own confusion. So God, I ask you to Create in us clean hearts, pure hearts, soft hearts. It will be open to your truth. God, cause us not to spend any time defending our own preconceptions or belief systems. But with the authority and power and wisdom and supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit, we ask you to teach us. Teach us about you. Teach us who you are. Teach us a greater awareness of you so that we honor you more directly, more completely, more truly as our King and as our God. I thank you for allowing us to to even enter into a relationship with you. It's a profound thing. You gave us a great example of the sanctuary and the Holy of Holies. And now you say that you create us into the Holy of Holies. Where Shekinah glory dwells. That's a, that's a big one. And when you think about the requirements and what happened in order to be able to enter even the Holy of Holies, the dread and the fear of putting a rope, is that how we should live? Should we live with a bell on our, around our neck and a, and a rope around our foot and fear that if we are disobedient and wrong with you, we'll be struck dead. You, you live. That's, that's an amazing thing. Your power dwells now in us. God, I ask you to give us an awareness of that so that we don't continue to live in the state we do. I thank you that it is not based on our goodness. It is not based on our worthiness. It is not based on our works. It is not based on our own righteousness, but it is based on right standing with you because of what Jesus did. And I thank you for that. I thank you that we can know your mercy, your grace, your patience, your long-suffering because of Jesus. Amen. So last week, we talked some about Gnosticism. Looking in, yeah. And and I, you know the challenge that I had to you guys was: Have you considered who you really see Jesus and who He is? Um, I don't know. Did any of you were any of you challenged by that, or were you, or, or did you get too busy in life? But the 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 foundation. It's not about our theology. It's not about our. It's what. It's our belief system that moves, and motivates, and guides us every day. And oftentimes, tragically, those two systems are completely different. Our intellectual belief system, our theological, doctrinal statements, and our lives. 
unfortunately don't don't follow the same path too often. And and I would just like to leave that as a foundation partly of what we talk about today is that it's it's critical that that our foundation of truth is what moves us and motivates us. Um, it, it's a tragedy when we one of the as, there's two aspects of Gnosticism that seem to have attached to our Christianity today. One of them is the the denial of the manhood of Jesus, of the humanness of Jesus. And you think, well, that's kind of hard to understand. We can't understand that. And that's like a mystical thing. And how can we understand that he was God and man? And, and that's hard. No, no. It's very, very crucial that we all understand that he was fully man. That as a man, he died in our place. If we do not understand him as a man who died in our place, we don't understand the substitutionary position that he took. The other aspect is of Gnosticism was intellectualism. That they, they tended to intellectualize their relationship with God. And so that they felt righteous because of correct intellectual understanding. You know, the, I, I wish, <clears throat> I mean, I, I, I spent my life with this great disassociation and mocking of the Pharisees and scribes in Jesus' day. Because um, those guys, when, when you look back as Monday morning quarterbacks and look back and look at the way they did and look at the fact they missed Jesus and look at their self-righteousness and look at their arrogance, it becomes pretty obvious. And we go, I'm glad we're not like them. And yet we live in a culture that acts like them. We live in a culture of Christianity that acts like them. Where we are very correct intellectually. Um but fail to apply that to where our boots go. Fail to apply that to our lives. They honored God with their mouths and Jesus condemned him for not honoring God with their lives. And I, and I, I want to emphasize that, that we need to understand that those things creep into our Throughout history, it's amazing to watch, to look at the history, history of Christianity. Um, because mainstream Christianity from day one was rarely not a mess. If not always a mess. Um, you, you know, you, you, any, any period of time that you look at from, from a hundred years after Jesus died particularly, um, th- there's some wrong directions that are taken and gone. Um, it's a real mess. And, and we tend to think that we've corrected those. We tend to think we live in a day that's, that's not like the Catholics. It's not like fighting over ridiculous things. Um, I would hold that would be a pretty arrogant belief system. The mainstream Christianity is, is maybe as far off, no, is as far off, I would say, as the Pharisees were. Um, so, and, and, and the reason, the reason the, the, there's one major understanding. Um, there's a bunch of them, but there's one major understanding that we miss, and Colossians addresses it. And that's that what happens at the point of, of being made right with God. Um, number one, you know, we... we we talked about it in the songs that we sang today, that we're lost without him. And, and do, we really, do we really understand our state of existence outside of a relationship with God? I would, I would say that our um, American materialism and amalgamation of, of lots of thoughts, including Christianity, causes us to really diminish our state of existence outside of a right relationship with God. And we, we tend to look, because we're, we're pretty well, you know, we're not, we're not like people in Calcutta. I mean, you might realize what a desperate state they're in or something, you know. Um, we're, we're pretty good, and we tend to equate the material blessing in this country to 
the blessing of God. And so we think we're really not that far outside of the blessing of God. And, and, and we don't realize our desperate state of existence outside of a right relationship with God and our need to be right with Him. Um, let, let me just read in, in Colossians, and then we'll look at it a little bit, starting in verse 21. Again, the, the, what we talked about last week was it is all about Jesus and it's all about a right understanding of him. I mean, the, the, the verses prior to that speak of it's all about Jesus. Okay? In him all things were created, both in heavens and earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions and authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. It's all about Jesus. So, Colossians 1, verse 21, it says... And although you were formerly, formerly alienated, this is talking to the believers. Remember, he addresses this in the beginning of the chapter to the saints, to the faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. So this isn't a generic letter written. This is a letter written to the saints. So we have to understand when he says this, this isn't a general populist letter. This is a letter written to the saints. So when he refers to them, he's, and he says, and you were formerly alienated, and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Do we, do we really believe that's the state that we exist in outside of a right relationship with God? Because that's a very important thing to understand. Um, I, I, I really think that a lot of Americans believe that they're really pretty sound and pretty good and they just need a little cleanup. They just need a little refinement. They just need a, to add a little um, add a little Jesus to them. You know, we're, we're, we're often taught, I mean, the, the, the example is used often that we all have a God-shaped vacuum within us. And there's a God-shaped hole there. And it, the only thing that can fill that hole and make you complete is God. Um, I think that's a blasphemous statement. You know, we are desperately lost without God. Okay? There's not a little hole that's missing and the rest is doing pretty good and God will just complete us. Okay? We are in a desperate state outside of a right relationship with God. And, and if we don't realize that, we probably don't realize who God is and what a relationship with Him looks like. Okay, if we if we if we are just if we just accept God. Now I, I you know, we, Jim and I were talking about this yesterday. I, I have no doubt the Bible says, and I agree. That's not a, that's a smart thing to do. But the Bible says it's the love of God that draws men to repentance. Okay, I, I believe that's true. I think that the love of God draws men. But, but the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Okay? I believe that, that we see the glory of God, that we see the reality of God, that we all long to have a relationship with Him. But the, the, the concept that we can continue on and do that in and of ourselves is basically what all the religions of the world are about. Um, that, that we can somehow live our lives in a way that we can have that right relationship with God. And the Bible is very clear that we have no way to have a right relationship with God outside of being born again. Jesus was asked, what must I do to enter the kingdom of God? You must be born again. Right? And again, I, I ask you to try to open your hearts a bit because... Growing up in America, we've all heard the term born again. We've all heard the term born again Christian. Okay? And yet, we really have a misunderstanding of that because the most of those, most of myself included, growing up my whole life, I was certainly a disciple and a follower of Jesus. Um, I was not born again. I mean, I said the prayer at different times and stages in my life, but I was not born again. How do I know I was not born again? 
I know that I was not born again because my life didn't reflect it. I did did not live my life um, free from the bondage of sin. I did not live my life in, in servitude to my king and my master. I did not live my life to honor with the totality of my life the God of the universe. Okay? And, and when we're born again, we, we need to understand this is not just coming to a point of intellectual correctness. This is a transforming, supernatural interjection of the power of God in our lives. That's what Jesus died for. The resurrection power is essential in our lives. Essential to, to walk rightly with God. Again, it says, you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. It, now, if we do not understand that's the state we were in, we probably don't really understand the desperate need for a Savior. Okay? And he says, yet now, okay, yet he has now reconciled you. Reconciled. And the word reconciled is a very strong use of the, of the Greek word. It means completely and totally reconciled. Okay? It's not just reconciled between two people. It's a, it's a stronger form of the verb that means completely done, reconciled you in his fleshly body. Again, this is why it's important to understand who Jesus was, that he was fully man. You in his, in, and fully God, that in his fleshly body, through his death, in order to present you before him, holy and blameless and above reproach. There is a condition. Okay? Now, now, there, there's two things here that I believe are important. One is there's a condition. Say, well, there's no condition. It's by grace we're saved through faith. Not of ourselves, not by works. That any man should boast? Um, that's true. That's absolutely true. But it says, if, if you re- continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which is proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. I, I want th- this statement, though. Let's go back to verse 22. Because I'd like to, you guys to consider first what it says. Yet he has now, okay, what, what is, he's speaking and addressing the saints. Okay. He, he says, now I have reconciled you, he has reconciled you with his fleshly body, the death of Christ, through his death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and above reproach. What, what does that mean? Does that mean now? Or does that mean someday in heaven? There, there is a, what I would consider a tragic misunderstanding, that that means only someday in heaven, and that now God is fine with you being a mess. Um, that is not what he's saying. If we look, the same words are used in Ephesians, because it's used to describe, and, and I'd, You can turn there or listen a minute. But in Ephesians 5, a chapter that we all, we went through and spent quite a bit of time with, and it's pretty, pretty important. And at the time, we definitely focused on the responsibility of a husband towards his wife, right? And, and it's, and that's the example that he's using of Christ in the church and what a husband towards his wife, what their relationship is supposed to look like. And like most things in the Word, this, this is about you can judge them by their fruit. And that's a very, the, the Bible says it. This is what it will look like. This is our responsibility. This is what we're supposed to do. In verse, in verse 25 okay, of, verse, of chapter 5 of Ephesians, it says, Husbands, love your wives. And again, Listen to this. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Isn't that what we just read? In Ephesians, now he has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. 
right? That's the same, that's the same act that we're talking about, right? That's the same, same thing. Love your wife just as Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. Why? Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that what? So that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Now, we, we, have, we have a couple of choices here. Okay? We, we have the choice of saying, okay, let's, let's refer to the church. This is one of the choices. But in the context of the church and what Christ did, we have the choice of saying, God does not, God overlooks sin. Right? We can say, God, God doesn't see our sin. Even though I am, a, 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 I am in bondage to sin, even though I, I live in bondage to sin, in whatever level that may be, whether that means emotions, whether that means a, a, a lack of food, whether that means sexual bondage, whether that means materialism, whether that means anger, whether that means selfishness, whether that means disobedience to God by not loving others more than myself and not regarding, regarding them as more important than myself, whatever the willingness that we have to live in in that sin and, and write it off as that's just the way it is. Okay. We, we have the, the option of looking at this as, so therefore God, even though he sees that, um, he must, he overlooks it. He has scratched glasses, you know. Not just rose-colored glasses, but scratched rose-colored glasses, okay. So he really doesn't see very well and really doesn't see our sin. We have the option of looking at that, which I would say is a pretty strong contemporary belief system. That God doesn't really see our sin. He doesn't really have an expectation of holiness, of blamelessness. He, he, he overlooks your sin. He doesn't see it. I, I would say that that is completely unbiblical. God does not overlook any sin. It, it's, it, the Bible's real clear to say that all men will stand before God and give an answer for their lives. Okay? The Bible's, the Bible's clear about that. And we can, we can wash that away with some theology about which judgment that is, and is that the great white throne, or is that another one. The Bible says that we will stand before God and give account for our sins. Okay? All men, all sin will be judged. The way I think that the Bible says it, it makes it very clear is I've got one or two options in that. Either I will stand on my own two feet before God and answer for my sin, and that will not go well. That will not go well. Or I will stand before God with the justification of the, the perfect, the perfect substitutionary offering of Jesus. That Jesus stood in my place and took the judgment of God for my sin on himself. Okay, the G- Jesus Jesus took my sin on Himself, and that this isn't just a universalism about the sins of all men. This is individually what is imperative for me to have a right relationship with God. Okay, did Jesus die for the sins of all the world? It says He died for the sins of all men. Well, are most people? Or or, or or all people, let's just say, going to end up in heaven? Or are there people that are going to hell? Going to hell? People that are going to hell? I mean, do we believe there's people that are going to hell? Well, didn't Jesus die for their sins? Well, but how does that work then? How does that work? If, if there are people that are going to hell, and Jesus died for the sins of all men... How does that work? Is there, is there, are there some who will appropriate that forgiveness and some who won't? Yes. Yes. In fact, in fact, the, Jesus said the road is narrow that leads to life and the road is, the broad road leads to destruction. Right? So, so there are many, just because Jesus died for all sin, most will not do what? 
Most will not honor him as God. Most will not live their lives in submission to their king. Most will not be baptized into the death of Jesus. Okay? Most will not be able to hide behind the work of Jesus. It, and unfortunately, this, this, you know, we, we don't, we don't, I, I want you to reflect a minute on, on what, when Jesus is talking about husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she should be holy and blameless. Now when we talk about this being relegated to husband and wives do we think that that, that your wife should look holy and blameless after she dies? Or, or are we talking about a practical reality of the effect on your wife now as husbands? I would just say we are talking about a practical reality. God, God says that it's a practical reality. He, he says, he says if, you, if you know, in one instance, you can, if, if you're going to determine the qualification of an elder, says, go look at their wife. Right? Go look at their wife and see. And because the, the, the effect of laying your life down for your wife has a pra- is supposed to have a practical effect here on earth right now. Okay? It is absolutely true of the work of Jesus in laying down his life and shedding his blood for the church. It is supposed to have a practical effect on us right now. When he's talking about being holy and blameless, he is not just talking about after we die. He is talking about the, a, a process of sanctification being in effect, a process of redemption being in effect. That we are to be changed people. It, it's, a, it's a tragedy that we say, God is fine with my rebellion or God is fine with my sin. God is not fine with your sin. God spent 2,000 years giving us an example of where His glory would dwell among men. Okay? Where was that when it came to the temple? It was in the Holy of Holies, right? Was that a place where sin was okay? Was that a place where, where unconfessed sin was fine? No! Most of you understand that, that when the high priest entered the Holy of Holies once a year, he had a rope tied to his foot. Okay? So when the bell quit ringing because of unconfessed sin in his life and he entered the presence in an unpure way before God and he struck they could drag him out. Okay? They could drag him out. So how did God feel about having impurity in his holy of holies. How did, how did God feel about the sanctification of the temple? Okay. Pretty strongly, right? And how does God feel about our lives? I, the, the, the concept of, of our wives being holy and blameless is, again, when it comes to Colossians, is speaking the same thing. He should be that that he laid down his life in order to present him to present us before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And those words are those words. I don't know if we do really understand them. You know, blameless is without blame. Blameless is meaning don't have that, that you're not in rebellion, that you're not in sin. Okay. And, and to understand, we, we have to understand that this is not a fleshly achievement. Okay? When, when, when he talks about a born-again believer, what does he say? That our struggle is against flesh and blood? Or does he say our struggle is no longer against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and authorities, 
right? Because Jesus died to set us free. Jesus died and rose again, was infused with the resurrection power that we can know in our lives. Being born again is a transformation of our being. Being born again is not intellectual correctness. Being born again is a transformation of our being. It's not based on, on doctrinal soundness. It is based on an act of the Most High God infusing the resurrection power into our life. We are born in captivity. We are born in bondage to sin. Again, one of our big problems is we don't really realize that verse 21 was true. And although we were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, we think, well, there was many ways to get to God, and I was close to God, and, and I know God. I mean, how many people do you know outside of, of, a, of an understanding of the gospel of Jesus even, outside of a submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ that say they feel close to God? A lot of people, right? From all different denominations. They feel like they're right with God, right? Does a Muslim feel like he's right with God? He absolutely does, right? Is he right with God? No, he's not right with God. Okay, a, a, a Muslim is is bowing down in serving his master. He, he he is honoring Muhammad as his savior, as his master. Okay, he is not right with God in 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 his Muslim beliefs. Does he feel right with God? Yes. You know, tell me which does a Hindu, does a Buddhist, does a Mormon. Does a, you know, does a, does a pagan. You know, we're full of a valley that feels like they're right with God when they go walking in the woods. And yet they deny God with their life. And they deny the necessity of having a right relationship with, with God based on the work of Jesus Christ solely and completely. Right? So how you feel about it and how you feel about your relationship with God really doesn't have a whole lot of bearing. It isn't about how you feel. It's about truth. And the truth is that we are alienated from God. That we do not, we cannot have a right relationship with God. Period. And that should make us realize our desperate state of existence and cry out for God. Cry out and, and realize, God, how can I have a relationship with you? To be there for having a right relationship with Him is being born again. That's what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to redeem us. And, and, and it's practical, and it's real. If you continue in the faith and establish and steadfast, not moved from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Christ didn't lack anything in his life, okay? But we're the body of Christ, and we are now representing Jesus Christ. And Jesus said that you will share in my sufferings. You'll share in my sufferings in this world. And Paul's saying, I'm, I share in the sufferings. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. This, this is the mystery. The mystery that has now been manifested to his saints. Okay, That's his holy ones. That's true believers. To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is what? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is us, the sanctuary of God. And we proclaim him, admonishing every man, or encouraging every man, and teaching every man with all wisdom, that we may present every man complete. Complete. Perfect. Is the word. Okay? Complete 
And it's not the word that means mature in Greek. It's a word that means complete in Christ. And for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. That's a pretty strong statement. And, and without realizing the hope, without realizing the riches of the glory of the mystery, okay? the riches of the glory of the mystery is Christ in us. Okay? Is being born again. Being born again, I'm sure you've all heard that phrase. But being born again is that the fullness of the deity, the spirit of the almighty God comes and dwells in us, comes and lives in us. And, and has absolutely a transforming powerful effect on our lives. Okay? It, it, to, to, it does not coexist with rebellion and sin. Okay? God, came, God came, sent Jesus to redeem a people to himself. Prior to Jesus, there was no being born again. Okay? It, it doesn't appear. I mean, there was a few cases where it appears that the Holy Spirit dwelled on a semi-permanent basis in people's lives. Okay. But he sometimes was there and sometimes wasn't there at times too. Remember, he, he, he came on Saul and filled Saul when he became king over Israel. But that didn't go well when Saul forgot about God. Okay, And God pulled his Holy Spirit and allowed a demon even, it says, from him to haunt him after that. He still was a spiritual man, but didn't go well after that, right? And, and it, it, you know, there's there's people there's people like Melchizedek potentially, who we don't really know much about. There's a brief few brief statements about him in the Bible, um, who seem to to walk and exist in the power and glory of God. Um, we don't know much about him, but for all practical, for the, the truth is that that the Shekinah glory did not dwell in men. The Holy Spirit did not dwell in men on a permanent basis. He dwelt, he he lived, he came, he showed his glory, he showed his power in the Holy of Holies, in the sanctuary. When he came and lived among his people that he'd called to give glory to all the nations. And he said, and I will represent my glory through this people. So he did that. And he set up the the, the Holy of Holies, where His Shekinah glory would dwell. And now that, that glory dwells in us. Now we are the temple of the Most High God. And if that doesn't have a profound, powerful effect on us, I mean, it, a good study for all of us would be to go back and read about the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. It, it, because it's a, in, in the priesthood and how, how they related to the sanctuary and how they related to the Holy of Holies. Because it would give us a different perspective about our lives. It was a model. It was a sample of what was to come, of what was to be perfected in Jesus Christ. And, and, and God was pretty strict about it. God was pretty absolute about it. And when, God, when G, the work of Jesus is such that we truly can be born again. And being born again is infused with the resurrection power of God. Is being set free as a captive. Is set up no longer in bondage to slave, in slave to sin. It, it, and I, you know, how do I know that I wasn't born again growing up, even though I wanted to be and tried to be many times? Because I didn't have power over sin. Because I was held captive by sin. And, and, and what, was, what was lacking in my life? What was, what was lacking in my life? I can tell you what was lacking very directly. What was lacking was complete and total surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what was lacking. You, 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 there, there is not a, such a thing as a, 
is a 75% or 95% or whatever commitment to God which results in being born again. Okay? God says when we die. Say, in, 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 what, what does it mean to die? Do I stab myself with a knife? No, I surrender, give up my will. The right to my life. The authority in my life. And I give that over to my king. And I submit to the authority of my king. And in that process, I was born again. You know, that, I would say that was, you know, that was ten years ago. You know? I mean, after a lifetime of being a disciple, of being a follower of God, I didn't know power over sin. I didn't know that I could be set free. I thought I just lived a life of struggling. You know, we, we, we don't even address, we don't even address it in the church too often. Okay? We don't address our desperate state of existence. Okay? That we are, that we are engaged in evil deeds. That brings separation from God. We, that brings alienation from God. That means we are hostile in our minds. Well, it didn't seem that way. I was accepted and exonerated as a, as a good Christian oftentimes. But I wasn't. I wasn't born again. I was a follower of Jesus. And the way I feel about it or the way that I felt about it doesn't make a stinking bit of difference. Because there's people all over this world that do not feel hostile towards God. That do not feel alienated from God. And yet, according to, to, to the, the Word of God, according to to Jesus, according to God Himself, they are very much alienated if they are not reconciled with God through the power of the cross. Okay? If they are not born again through the supernatural infusion of power. Now the process is the process is one again of, of being a disciple of Jesus. You know, my 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 purpose is not to save you. That's a fairly ridiculous postulate. I cannot save you. Okay? My purpose is to make disciples. Okay? What does that mean? That means followers of Jesus. That means displaying with my life, displaying with our lives, displaying with truth, displaying with teaching, the character and nature of Jesus. So that why? So that all of us can come to a point where we, where we realize that He's trustworthy. Where we realize our need for dependency on Him. Where we realize that, that the only way we can have a right relationship with God is by His grace, His unmerited favor towards us. Where we realize our sin. Where we realize our rebellion. And we realize that, that we can have a right relationship with God because of what Jesus did. Misconceptions about Jesus will lead to not following Him. The responsibility is to teach the truth of Jesus so that when we see the nature and character of Jesus, when we see the nature and character of our God, we will long to have a relationship with Him and realize that we can through the work of Jesus. And, and, it, and it's a process that has very little to do with the words of your mouth. It's a process that has everything to do with the state of your heart. It's a process that you come to where you come, come to a state in your life where you are, realize the desperate need for God. The desperate, the desperate state of existence when we are alienated from God. The desperate inability to resist the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we want to be set free from that? We can be. That's what Jesus came for. To restore that relationship with God. To, to enable us to live a relationship with God like He had on earth. Intimate, with unbroken fellowship. He enabled us to. Will we? You know, I, I, I don't... There's no excuse for sin in a born-again believer. Okay? I don't want to make excuses for sin. Tragically and pathetically, we all have a, quite a bit of redemption necessary. Okay? We have a strong process of sanctification necessary. But God called us to have an intimate relationship with Him 
holy, and blameless. That's what our calling, and that's what God enabled us to do. And, and so if we if we struggle with our flesh overpowering us, if we struggle with with we we can't help but submit to our flesh, we should realize that we probably need to be born again. And that that's a transformation that can truly happen. It's not a theological state of existence. It's not, it's not an intellectual ascension. That, that, that's a reality of the infusion of the power of God, of the life-giving power of God. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. That's another way of saying that we are hostile and alienated from God. We are dead in our trespasses and sin, in our, in our rebellion towards God. And being born again is being made alive in that relationship. Being made right in that relationship. Restoring that relationship with God that He always intended and has always desired to have with us. God created us to walk intimately with Him. God created us to have an intimate relationship with Him. God did not create us to live our lives in bondage to the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's a process of sin in this world and being born into it. But there is a choice. There is a choice of all mankind, and it's given to all mankind, and that's to honor God as God. Let's pray. It is about your grace and your mercy and your compassion towards us. And that isn't overlooking a cesspool of life and and bondage to sin. That is allowing us to have freedom, to be reconciled with you, to be forgiven, to be set free. Not in our worthiness, not in our deservedness, but because you love us. Because you care, because that's what you desire. It is not about mutual reconciliation. It is not about you being reconciled to us. You have no, there is nothing to reconcile from your point. It's about us being reconciled to you. Made right with you. God, I'm, I'm not sure why, but I've never felt such a struggle in teaching probably in my life. And so I pray against the resistance to truth. God, that you would open our hearts. I pray that you would take my stumbling and bumbling in, in the struggle and illuminate in our hearts. I ask that you would not let us go away without the consideration that we can be born again if we are not born again. And if we are born again, to realize what that means and the expectation in our lives. That you long as a holy God to have an intimate relationship with a holy people. Submitted to you. Surrendered to you. Obedient to you. Led by your Holy Spirit. Sensitive aware and obedient to the leading of your Holy Spirit in all ways, in our relationships with each other, in our relationships with this world, in our relationships with the material aspects of this planet you put us on, and most certainly in our relationship with you. To be led, to be guided, to be obedient. And you've given us a way. You've you've empowered us. Time and time again in the Scriptures, you say that Paul's prayer is always, and and you say time and time again, that we can live our lives with your power. With the power of the Most High God infused into us. To fight the fight. To live the life. To be obedient. We're not to... 
you do not call us to leave our lives. You call us to set us free. To lead our lives in bondage. You do not call us to leave our lives in chains. You call us to live our lives powerfully, fruitfully. For your kingdom. An intimate relationship with you. And consistent, continual walking with you. That is your desire. And that's your provision. I I thank you for that. I thank you for that. I I thank you, Jesus, for being obedient to God the Father. I thank you, Jesus, for surrendering your Godhead. I thank you, Jesus, that that you spoke this world into existence. You spoke this universe into existence. You spoke all matter into existence. And yet you surrendered and became a man. And took on the fullness of a man. And were scorned and mocked. And ridiculed and killed. And beaten. Disrespected. Dishonored. Disbelieved. And you came with no nothing but to reconcile us to God the Father with no motive other than love. I thank you for that. I thank you for dying for my sin, for my rebellion, for my evil deeds in my place. I thank you, God, for the supernatural, He's the first resurrection power that you put in Jesus, that He is the firstborn. And that I can participate in that. And that we can all participate in that. As new creatures. As new people. This isn't a religion. This is a relationship based on your mercy and your compassion. In your supernatural infusion of power. Without the supernatural infusion of your resurrection power in our lives, we're, we're doomed to a life of bondage. To a life of combating the flesh. To a life of white-knuckling it. To a life of, life of trying our best. And thinking we're going to stand before you and say, look at this and look at mine and look what I did. God, I ask you to be God in our lives, in our families, in our relationships. Amen.